0: Living in this country and feeling good about it should never supersede my deep surrender to the kingdom of God. I am an ambassador from another realm in this troubled nation. The church is to be an embassy and an outpost to the kingdom of God, not a mouthpiece for political parties. That
1: America is a place where all things are
2: possible. That is some group of people. Thousands. This is a demon. I hate you naturally.
3: No, no, no. Not God bless America. God damn America. That's
1: in the Bible.
3: Welcome to Profane Faith, a podcast that engages faith on the margins. Faith that has been labeled profane, nonconformist, and or out there. We'll be exploring the intersections of the sacred Secular and profane Define God I'm your host Daniel White Hodge So Welcome back to Profane Faith Um, We thank you for listening And as always If you like us And you are digging what you're hearing Subscribe Yep, Like us on iTunes Rate us That's always good That always helps things out all the time Um, and if you're just tuning in for this particular episode, I always encourage folks to go back to episode zero zero and check out, um, just kind of what this whole podcast is about. And speaking of that, today I get a chance to sit down with a good friend of mine, uh, Reverend Ephraim Smith. Uh, he's uh, Well, he should be, and depending on when you hear this, he's probably going to be done with the doctorate. So uh, we can call him Reverend Doctor. Although I've known Ephraim for about two decades, uh, almost two decades, actually. That's not completely true. I've, I've known him for almost two decades. And, you know, he's not about the titles. He's not about the, the you know, the all the the name and the the title type of stuff that comes with some of these positions when you get into a upper echelon of leadership. And that's one of the things, one of the many things that I have appreciated about him. Um, Ephraim Smith uh, was a pastor of the Sanctuary Church out in the Twin Cities. He's he's from the the Twin Cities in Minneapolis. I actually knew my wife before she was even my wife. Uh, he uh, he and and my wife used to well then just I, I didn't even know her as my wife. She, Emily uh, were were friends. They were co-laborers in ministry out there in the Twin Cities. And, um, and now he has moved around quite a bit. In fact. He was uh, he stayed there for a while and then was the superintendent out in San Francisco for the Evangelical Covenant Church. He was then uh, moved to World Impact where he was the CEO. Um, And now he is out at Bayside Church Evangelical Covenant Church in Sacramento. Um, I got a chance to actually sit down because many of you know, if you know me, you know me. And just the whole title with evangelical just always throws me. And I know these are some of the conversations I've been having Uh, with brother Ephraim you know particularly since the November 2016 election of 45 Um, and what that meant how that impacts just what he does uh, his choice to leave world impact and I think that's really important I guess because Ephraim is really one of those faith leaders that has brought up stuff that a lot of people don't necessarily want to talk about in those conservative circles Um, I'm not in those circles, uh, but I do think we need people in those circles. And I think he has come to a place where he's seeing that, man, what, what does all this mean when, you know, when it's same thing I've been asking myself, right? It's like when you've worked in these communities for years, what does that actually mean when 81% of white evangelicals voted for somebody like 45? So check this interview out. I'd be curious to know what you guys think as well. But check this out. All right. Well, I'm here with uh, Reverend soon to be Dr. Ephraim Smith. Thanks for coming on the show today, man.
0: Man, I'm honored to be with you, bro.
3: Man, I appreciate it, man. Um, I know we've been well, at least while we're recording this, we've been teaching this doctoral class um, this week. Uh, We've had some good guests here so far. What, um, I mean, I think just for some of the folks who don't know you and what you do, what, what got you into ministry? What got you into the church? How did you begin to cut your teeth in all
0: of this? Sure. Well, you know, um, I, I grew up in the church. My, my mother and my grandmother were uh, a part of a church called Redeemer Missionary Baptist Church in okay. Minneapolis, Minnesota. Mm-hmm. That's where I was born and raised. They actually were a part of the the church originally began as Tabernacle Missionary Baptist Church, hmm. and then uh, that church closed. And then, uh, the, basically, the, the same core group ended up uh, incorporating a new congregation, uh, Redeemer Missionary Baptist Church, where I was where I was raised. Mm-hmm. And then I was also very involved in the youth ministry at uh, Park Avenue uh, United Methodist Church in South Minneapolis as well. And so, you know that those places I discovered my gifts and talents uh, became a Christian and then uh eventually would um sense a call to ministry
3: okay okay and what um I mean as you I'm thinking about it because I've known you well, let's see, I think I met you through my through my wife, Emily. Sure, yeah. I think so, because you always told the story that she was in your office so she was somewhere crying about her future husband.
0: <laughs> yeah, we, we, we prayed for you. Yeah, that's right. Me, that's, me and three other youth <laughs> pastors with her. Right. She's like, I love kids. I want to see kids come to Christ. I love a husband too. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so, um, she hasn't cried since, since she married you. That's right. That's right. <laughs> that's right.
3: Right. <laughs> Um, well, I mean, it's um I'm, I'm curious about because you said you grew up in the Twin Cities. What was the climate like particularly um during the 90s uh or well, late 90s and then of course uh then 9/11 hit and everything. How was how did that affect what you were doing in your ministry? How did that affect what you were were were, were going through or what you were what were you engaged in?
0: Yeah, well, you know, growing up in Minneapolis, I experienced Minneapolis uh, especially on the south side where I grew up uh, but also the north side where I ended up going to high school and where I had a number of relatives that lived over there. I saw Minneapolis go from this predominantly white community where more and more black families were moving from the south uh, to white flight happening um, in the 70s and into the early 80s mm-hmm. and then... Um, by the nineteen nineties, uh, there were pockets of the city of Minneapolis on both the north and south side that had become under resourced and mm-hmm. more black and brown, and a lot of businesses had left where where banks and and businesses used to be, where um, where retail uh, stores were were now cash and check stops and mm-hmm. you know, greasy spoon and fast food places. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. I mean, it, it, and so, but yet I felt as a teen and then even as an adult, sometimes that those outside our community blamed us for the conditions hmm. we were in. Interesting. So, you know, I, I would, I, you know, you talk to people outside the city of Minneapolis and once they found out where I did ministry, uh-huh. it was like, why won't those families do this? Why won't those people, yeah. which was this cold word for why won't black people get their stuff together? <laughs> Right. What's wrong? And right. didn't realize that they they were benefiting mm-hmm. from the the families, the churches, the businesses that fled the community in which I grew up.
3: Man, who and who's benefiting? You say who they were benefiting? Who was who was benefiting? The, the,
0: the white families, white okay. suburban families. So when a when a suburban youth pastor uh, or a suburban pastor would would want to know why the conditions were such Mm -hmm. in certain neighborhoods where I was doing ministry. Why gangs? Why broken families? Why violence? Um, Why is the school system, they couldn't put it together that they were benefiting from the, the um, human, the social, the financial capital that fled Hmm. the community where I grew up. And now where I was doing ministry and those families those resources, those businesses fled to the suburbs mm-hmm. and they were benefiting from that flight and couldn't put it together how the people I was ministering to, yeah. what what a tremendous loss okay. it was for them economically, socially, and so forth.
3: Man, well, that's interesting um, because I think that's, well, there's two, two trains of thought and I want to get to this here in a second and, and whatnot, particularly with how that narrative of blame black people because I think we hear that still with particularly the Trump presidency, uh, 45's presidency. I mean, well, and he has come out and said, you know, um, you know, what do you, what do you as black people have to lose? Right. You know, so, um, you know, if you elect me, I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to stop the carnage, right. And all this stuff, you know, but still the narrative has been you, if you just had this, or if you just had did this, or if you just did that, you know, you'd be, you'd be better off. You know, in, in life. And so uh, that's I find that fascinating that, you know, that narrative continues. Um, but I'm also curious just how one of the things I always talk about is 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 nine eleven, and I want to get to 2002 in a second. But is nine eleven? How did that affect in particularly your where you were at in your context?
0: Well, you know, I remember um, I was a youth pastor at Park Avenue United Methodist Church mm-hmm. at the time. And I remember, um, uh, I was in the youth room and we happened to have a TV in there and somebody else on staff came to me and said, you got to turn on the TV and look at the news. Hmm. Um, and so, uh, I remember, um, seeing what was going on and, you know, it's interesting because though my heart was grieved mm-hmm. and, and I was, I was deeply troubled by by the devastation, the loss of life, yeah, uh, what that meant, the the way there there was a part of me that I was simultaneously grieving, but also feeling that um, because of that tragedy, how unfortunately that was going to distract from the ongoing tragedies and trauma that families that young people were dealing with in the neighborhood where I was in. And so I, I expected, and it was a great thing that our nation would come together mm-hmm. and, and, um, and unify around um, that tragedy and say, we've got to be a stronger country, right? We, 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 have we've got to come together. We, we need churches and fire departments and police departments and politicians and business leaders you know, in a for a moment, it didn't matter what color you were, if you were Republican or Democrat, uh, whether you know if you were a police officer or right. a preacher, none of those things mattered. There was this moment of a, a more unified America, but once we were on the other side of that horrific, very unfortunate tragedy, we we weren't able to figure out how to come together as a nation in the same way to solve some ongoing tragedies yeah. that exist in our nation.
3: What's well, interesting and the reason I bring up 9/11 just cuz I, I feel like well I don't feel like I know the world changed, you know, politically, culturally, just from a music point of view, I mean, how we look at laws, you think about the Patriot Act, and I think so much of that was connected back to faith as well, how dare somebody attack God's nation, how dare somebody come at, you know, the United States. Um, and at the same time, you know, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And, and I think, well, at that point I was in, I was still with Young Life and I remember distinctively that, you know, Young Life National had sent out a, you know, a, a bulletin saying, you know, hey, if you guys need counselors, if you guys need some, some help, you know, helping w- working with your students, you know, we'll send it to you. And I remember bringing that up, you know, the, the following, you know, cause we met, it was, I think 9-11 having on a Tuesday. I think we were meeting that Thursday and I remember my students looking at me and saying, um, Dan, like, yeah, that's cool, but we've been experiencing stuff like this for a long time. You know." And they started going through all the lists of people who've been shot, people who've been killed, people who've overdosed, and said, how come this now becomes, you know, like this is tragic? Why, why couldn't we've had counselors before? And so it just got me thinking, you know, during that time and during, you know, and, 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 and particularly what that meant for how Christians viewed.
0: Oh, yeah. You you raise a good point because, you know, you're making me remember that something else that changed after 9-11. And you'll remember this, that, you know, coming out of the period of the 90s when you had the riots after the initial verdict around Rodney King. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And even the, you know... What took place, you know, in terms of just the what was going on around the O.J. Right. Uh, Simpson trial? Right. That uh, there were what I thought some healthy and productive programs when instead of just criminalizing every element and aspect of why black and brown young people find themselves in gangs, mm-hmm. all of a sudden there were these. I mean, like first of all, the gangs themselves were taking responsibility by calling. There, there were truces that were being called yeah. across the nation. There were gang leaders that were were ready to uh, think about positive cash flow right. initiatives and right. strategies, job development. Um, there there were uh, even even um, people in the criminal justice system mm-hmm. were like, mm-hmm. Let, let's maybe we should treat this as a health issue. Right. And not just a criminal issue. Maybe we need to look at sentencing and and kind of reverse some of the the President Clinton three strikes and you're out stuff. Right. So it looked right. like we were headed somewhere. And on the other side in nine eleven, somehow beyond the just going after Al Qaeda and then eventually going after ISIS and Saddam Hussein, it was almost like we went backwards. Where like no, now we got to recriminalize. Black and brown people, yeah, yeah, that have really nothing to do with what happened at nine eleven, mm-hmm. but but it seems like for whatever reason, whenever we get highly patriotic in the country, okay, we yeah. also get high law and order, yes, and then we um, we reinstitute what feels like a high criminalization narrative. Yeah, of what is going on in under-resourced communities, especially around Black and Brown people.
3: Oh, absolutely, (laughs) absolutely, man. Well, I think back. I mean, I know in '93, you know, I was 19. This was about almost a year after the uprisings. So the the uprisings had happened in LA in on April 29th, 1992. You know, I've talked about that moment and you know, in that time, those three days of of really where i felt like okay i'm not gonna loot i'm here to i was willing to die for just just to exist as a black man um was the first time i came to the realization that i probably wouldn't make it out of this but my efforts to overturn what was whatever the the the, whatever the establishment whatever whites had established as as both non-material and material cultural structures i knew i wanted to tear down and um and thankfully, I survived. But I and I remember you're right. We came together. Homicides were down. Rebuild LA started, and literally within six eight months, they quietly closed their doors. And I mean, and I'm like, I don't know where this two three billion that was raised for that like where did that go? Where did those millions of dollars go that was promised? Where the ride zone? And so within a year, 1993, people were back at it because they're just like, man, um, we just went through this. And I remember distinctively going. And this this time I was back up in the Bay Area, and I remember distinctively going to to Oakland, the Oakland, uh, uh, uh mayoral office, the the, you know, the county offices there. And after this is after the cameras had gone, and I remember distinctively getting a restraint order put on us because they didn't want us around, you know, the, uh, uh, the the government offices anymore and stuff. And so that was really a sign to me that was like, wow, that this they really don't care, man. I mean, here it is, we all this stuff they're talking about on camera, and here we are. We're trying to figure it out, but then, they, you know, the the, the, the political team wouldn't, there wouldn't even meet with us. And this started happening, you know, around other places as well. You know, people just began, Other particularly black and brown voices were just, you know, ignored around that time. Yeah.
0: And so, unfortunately, it feels like that tape is being replayed again where right. we could find ourselves here very soon so occupied around uh What's going to happen between our nation and North Korea? What, what's going to happen mm-hmm. around all the stuff around Russia? Right. Um, uh, still ongoing situations in the Middle East that, again, will all of that distract from and take away from uh, the kind of collaborative, transformative work that could be done in under-resourced inner-city communities right. around the nation.
3: Right, man. Yeah, that's no. That's a lot. That's a lot to deal with, man. I think. Um, I think the first time. Well, I know the first time I saw you present, it was at Urban Youth Workers Institute. It was 2002. You were with Phil Jackson, and the room was packed. I think it was probably a room like the we're, we're in right now. Probably not much bigger than this. And it was packed with standing room only. I remember I couldn't even get a seat. And I was, and I was there. I thought I was there early. It was something about postmodern hip-hop and something. I it was something around the title um, of postmodernity and hip hop. And I just remember you guys, this was the first time I had seen at a conference like that, particularly dealing with youth ministry, that had addressed the issues that I felt hip-hop really was talking about and really um getting at the issues from a theological perspective. I mean, and so you guys ended up putting out the first, well, one of the first. I mean, I think A Noise and Spirit came out in 2003 with Anthony Penn, and um, I think he edited that, um, and a few people are in there that I know. Uh, But you guys came out, was it 2005, with the hip-hop church, you and Phil?
0: Yeah, that sounds about right, 2005, 2006, something like that. Yeah. Um, You know, it's interesting. In 2000, I... um, was a part of the teaching team with Youth Specialties mm-hmm. at that time. That was like the gold standard of <laughs> right. you know youth ministry yeah. training and conferencing yeah. and publishing. <laughs> and um, I, I remember, uh, and again, Youth Youth Specialty was nice to me. That <laughs> they 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 treated me well to the degree that they they provided me a tremendous platform to speak. Sure, I mean, yeah, a lot of my I could say that. How I became noticed, um, propelled as a national speaker was opportunities that I received through youth specialties. But um, I could not at the time get youth specialties to see that urban youth ministry and hip hop culture in particular was one of the most visible signs of postmodernity. Mm-hmm. And and, um, and so they still at the time <laughs> may still feel this way that suburban Anglo youth ministry is is um, still the 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 innovative frontline uh, mission field uh, setting in which to think theologically, practically, strategically about youth ministry in America, and so. I wanted to publish something. So I remember I wanted to write a book. And so the first thing that happened was a, um, an Anglo woman. Um, I think she was here in the Chicago area at the time. Ginger sends Uh, she, um, mm. she, she was writing a book called help. I'm an urban youth worker. Yeah. Yeah. And so yeah. They asked me, uh, would you, you know, if we go to ginger and she's cool with it, um, why don't you, we'll say, help, I'm an urban youth worker by Ginger ball with Ephraim Smith.
1: <laughs>
0: and I, so I was thinking, oh, man, man because I, I, I wanted to write the hip-hop church book then. Yeah, yeah, or, yeah right. something along that right, line. Or something right. that, that I, wanted to, I wanted people to see that urban culture, especially hip-hop culture, was having an influence on all youth across America. Mm-hmm, yeah. And that for the first time in the country, black and brown, Asian, young people in hip-hop culture, man, suburban kids were wearing Malcolm X hats at the time. <laughs> right, I mean, you know, right. You know, suburban kids, you know, were, wanted to be hip-hoppers. <laughs> they wanted right. to be like inner-city kids, but I couldn't get you specialty to see that, so we ended up doing Help, I'm an urban youth worker with... And so this this is unfair to her, but I just thought really my first book I'm writing (laughs) with Ginger,
3: right Ginger on urban youth ministry. That's what I thought at the time.
0: And so (laughs) that comes out, and I just realized at the time, you know, um, what I'm doing with youth specialties right now, Mm -hmm. that's that's as far as it's going to go for me. Like I'm not going to be able to fully Hmm. Hmm. um, articulate, uh, present, write about all my ideas. I mean, they'll they'll let me do a workshop. They'll put me in a room and let me do the urban track. But I'm not gonna I'm not gonna get the same platform of Doug Fields and Duffy Robbins and Les Christie and Helen Music and Chap Clark to, right. pre- to to present in a way right. that it's this is seen as mainstream right. theology right. practice strategy yes. for healthy flourishing youth ministry. So fortunately, Urban Youth Workers Institute gave me that platform. It, it, yeah. It it gave me the place where on the main stage in a workshop setting, yeah. Uh, Larry Costa basically gave folks like you and I, absolutely, and Phil absolutely, and others free reign, absolutely, to, to be taken seriously. Yes. as not just um, an urban youth minister or pastor, right, but as as theologians, exactly, as well,
3: exactly. And I definitely credit UIWI for really giving me my first platform for for that as well because i mean you, you had in the you special i never even got in i remember i remember trying to approach them and it was like it was like nah nah we cool we yeah. we got our brothers i was i was like the jackie robinson <laughs> that's right of, of specialty.
0: right and and it's like and and so they you know how would i say it they you could be sugar ray robinson and box with them, but you couldn't be Muhammad. You was too right. Muhammad Ali. Right.
3: I was too great. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> you, you was like, don't call me Clay. <laughs> That's right. That's right. It's Muhammad. Well, you know, that brings up an interesting question. It really brings us, you know, the whole the whole podcast name is Profane Faith. And so, and, you know, obviously I don't think faith is profane, but I think there are some that have been labeled that way, and we're kind of hinting at that. It's like urban, Okay, well, you know, because I remember approaching, I'm I'm not going to name names, but I remember approaching a couple cats from, from, and I don't mean to demonize youth specialties, so if somebody's listening, I'm going to demonize them, but I remember approaching somebody from them and and asking them, and this was kind of the the response that I would get over and over and over, I don't know if you got this response as well, was like, we shouldn't have labels on ministry, youth ministry is ministry, and there shouldn't be any labels on that, and like, you know, the same thing we're talking about is the same thing that can apply in your neighborhoods as well. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, well, you know, and I'm, I'm like you. I mean, you know, I, I've got great love for you specialties. I mean, I'm speaking for them this this, this fall. Mm-hmm. Now, that don't mean I'm not going to speak the truth.
2: There you, you go. Know, right, right now,
0: just because I'm speaking for them in the fall, don't mean I can't speak right. truth right now. Right. And what I would say is, um, so I want to come back and say something about that profane faith in a minute, though, because okay. you got me. You got my brain spinning. Oh, a good. Good. Come, a good on. come on. Come on. But what I was going <laughs> to say about the you specialties. Is, and it's not just youth specialties. For a long time, ministry, the, 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 the whole, I'll call it the, the parachurch campus ministry industry, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. for a long time believed that youth ministry in the evangelical and mainline white suburban context yeah. was universal. For youth ministry everywhere. Now, when they go to other countries, they don't believe that. So, so if they if they start Youth for Christ or Young Life in Mexico or in Germany or in Kenya, they go with the mindset that we can't do you young <laughs> Young Life, we can't do Youth for Christ right. the same way we do it uh, in the states. Right. But, but there there's such Deep um, chasms yeah. between life yeah. for an adolescent in an under-resourced urban community yeah. than the suburbs, mm-hmm. and if you're black or brown, you can even be in the suburbs, mm-hmm. and it's just adolescent life—the terrain on which you are growing and developing, going through puberty, mm-hmm. trying to figure out if you're a man or a woman yet, if you have a voice, right. if, you're, if you're significant, if you're loved. That terrain for those in the under-resourced context that are black and brown, youth, the, the professionalized thinkers and academics in youth ministry, white, just weren't ready to receive mm-hmm. that truth. Yeah. Or they just didn't believe they could make money. Mm. And so maybe the thought was, well, yeah. because it is about money in America. Oh, absolutely.
3: There's yeah. a ministry industrial I mean, complex.
0: American church. We're about Jesus, the American church. <laughs> but we sure right. know how to commodify stuff and make money. <laughs> and so right. I'm sure for you specialties, they had to go, what's going to put butts in seats? Right. we putting on these conventions. We what what books are we gonna sell, man? If we put purpose driven youth ministry out there, right? You know, right. Then we'll find a spot for help. I'm an urban youth
3: worker. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. If
0: you want a copy, I'm selling them out the trunk of my All right, ministry.
3: all right, man. That's that's it. What's up? <laughs> <laughs> so that brings that brings me to another question, then, man. What what is? And we've talked a lot about this, but what is, what is the experience for particularly a black person? In evangelical spaces. (laughs) The look. Man. If y'all can see the look.
0: Okay, so, you know, this is profane faith, so we got to keep it real. That's right. (laughs) Um, You know, I would say, I I would frame a continuum that would start from um, unsafe Hmm. to minimal opportunities Hmm. for influence and transformation Mm. okay there are there are some evangelical spaces where there's room for african-americans not just to be on staff for diversity sake because i'm not interested in being on the staff of a parachurch ministry or an urban uh missions or ministry organization just so they can say, man, we have an articulate, educated African American (laughs) on our staff. He's so gifted. He's such a good speaker. He's so articulate. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But, but there is that dynamic. Absolutely. In some, in some places what African Americans are supposed to do is assimilate and learn the culture and the structure, go raise your financial support and do ministry. And there are some places that even if the the ministry can be good hearted, but they just don't they don't have the intercultural development skills Mm. and competencies Mm -hmm. to realize that their ministry environment is not a safe space that that for an African-American to come on their staff and work there creates an environment for the African-American where they are lonely, where they are vulnerable where um, they are set up for failure because the economic uh, system mm-hmm. is built on um, long-standing relationships in a predominantly white evangelical world that right. funds right. your ministry. Right. So you know. So what I learned when I when I was working for Fellowship of Christian Athletes, I learned early that my white peers were raising their support because they were at a church that had a missions pastor and a missions yeah. budget. Yeah. And they went to that church mm-hmm. and they had been there since they were a teenager. And the church was so proud of them. It was such a heroic thing that they were right. doing ministry. And <laughs> right. so they they could put on a couple dinners, have some coffee, play golf with a couple people, they raised their support for the year.
3: Right. Well that was the model I was introduced to. Yeah.
0: You know I'm, I'm at a church where the pastor's bivocational. The church can't even afford for the senior pastor to be full-time on staff.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, the, and there's no missions pastor. There's no missions budget.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so I can't go to my, and, and to try to explain to my parents, I mean, I'm trying to explain to my mom and dad. They're like, wait a minute, you have a job, and you do your job, but to get a check, You have to actually go out and ask people to give money so you can get paid. So on top of your job description of going out and reaching kids and getting kids to camp and leading kids to Christ and discipling them and mentoring them, that seems like a full-time job (laughs) to me, son. Right. On top of that, you're supposed to ask me and your aunties and your uncles and people to give you money Mm -hmm. or they're not going to pay you. I'm like, yes, dad, explain it. So these organizations (laughs) don't even realize what is natural to them and is in the spiritual theological DNA Mm -hmm. of how they do ministry. It's such a foreign, weird concept to many black churches, black families, black communities. And so we started such a deficit many times I I always thought well to be successful I got to make as many white friends as I possibly can (laughs) right so and then I got to make white friends with white people that didn't grow up in the neighborhood I grew up Mm -hmm. don't think like me politically don't think like me on some issues theologically and if they know that they might not give money to me so I've got to suppress yeah um certain aspects of who I am. yeah. But black people always had to do that. We've always had the WBB Du Bois talks about the double consciousness. Oh, double con- yeah. And man, I, nowhere have I had to live into the reality of the double consciousness of being black in America, of mm. who I am when I'm at church, when I'm with my family, when I'm at home. When I'm with my mom and dad, when I'm with my siblings, when I'm with my black Christian friends that I grew up in, then I got to go into this other world. Hmm. Uh, Many of our white brothers and sisters, they don't have to they don't have to live in that double mindedness. They can be the same person at home, the same person at church, the same person when they go raise their Hmm. support, the same person when they write their prayer letter. Hmm. And and. Some people, even if they would be listening to this podcast right now, Mm -hmm. I don't understand because now they want me to dig deeper. What do you mean your politics? Are you saying you're this leftist, liberal Marxist? (laughs) Right, 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 right. right. I'm not saying that I'm so so even to get um, some of my white evangelical brothers and sisters to to be patient enough to have a longer conversation to kind of step into my skin, to step into my world as a listener, mm-hmm. as an observer.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Now I, I would say, you know, I'm on the board of the navigators.
2: Okay. And I'm yeah.
0: finding that, you know, the navigators, they want to listen. They, they, and, 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 um, they, they're, they're instituting and putting in place, um, cross cultural intercultural Training mm-hmm. uh, uh, strategies and systems, uh, but it still comes down to the finance piece and who's going to fund it. Right. I hope I'm not going all over the place. No,
3: no, I'm no, no. no. This, this is exactly piece. it. I mean, because I think the finances is a big thing. I mean, I talk to most ethnic minorities who are involved in some kind of evangelical outreach organization, and that's the first thing that comes up man, raising funds. And how do you go about doing that? And I, and I know models are changing, but predominantly the model is we'll go out, we'll find some donors. and Or do you even have the networks? I mean, statistically talking, I mean, um, it's been found that, for example, when ethnic minorities, particularly black and brown uh, uh, folks, are at the head of evangelical outreach organizations, that they easily, 40%, 50% less than a white male in that same position, that, that the funds they, that they're able to raise –
0: And and the question becomes is really the problem is how far behind some of these evangelical organizations are. And this is why. In the marketplace world, things have changed. You can have tattoos and piercings. You can have locks and cornrows. Right. And if you have the right idea, the right business plan, and the the ROI is right, man, people (laughs) with suits on Will fund people full of tattoos with cornrows. It's the church world that, for some reason, I gotta change my look and put on Dockers and 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 put that button-down shirt on and and code switch. Yeah. So that I can convince people that God has anointed me hmm. to lead fruitful, thriving, transformative ministry. Hmm. Where. That's not true out in L.A. in the entertainment industry. You can keep your slang, keep your fashion, (laughs) right? And 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 if you and if you have the 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 giftedness, which is which is the secular term for anointing, the giftedness, yeah, the giftedness, the look, the right. Mm -hmm. People are like, man, I'll invest in him. I'll invest in her. Yeah, don't you don't change your look (laughs) because because the look and the slang. Is going to work for the context in which you're doing business. Hmm. And so why do I have to all of a sudden become suburban palatable to get the resources to go and be fruitful in a context that I already know I'm already received. I'm already connected. I'm already showing ministry fruit. Yeah. Yeah. I got a code switch. Yeah. I got a, make sure like i can't even say i gotta have to say <laughs> i believe i have
3: that's right that's right oh man well then so look man i don't i don't want to keep you man i know time is nigh but i, I definitely wanted to get to 45's election 81 percent, 82 percent of white evangelicals voted for him it is an there are people who are prophesying and saying that, I mean, I'll let you tell the trumpet story, but, you know, prophesying and saying that this is God's, you know, God's man. You know, I've seen memes that says, you know, with a picture of white Jesus with suitcases saying, I'm, 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 you know, I'm going back to the White House. What, what does this mean? And, and how is this, I guess for some listeners who may not necessarily <laughs> be up on history, may be asking, how did this happen How did we get here? So so let me say... Speak on that a little bit.
0: So let me say a couple things so that I put all my cards politically and theologically on the table.
3: All right, come on.
0: Politically, I am independent.
3: All right, all right, all right. When
0: it comes to political ideology, I am a moderate. Um, All right. I'm pro-life. Mm-hmm. And yet, um, I believe in criminal justice reform that includes serious changing in police strategies for serving under-resourced, predominantly African-American communities. Yeah. I believe that there's another way to address immigration besides a wall and mass deportation. Okay. Um, So... If I went through all of my political issues, you wouldn't be able to peg me as Republican. You wouldn't be able to peg me as Democrat. And I'm evangelical. I wish more Hmm. of my white evangelical brothers and sisters that voted Trump would seek brothers and sisters out like me so that you could have a, I believe, a balanced, biblically rooted, prayed through understanding of why my heart is grieving hmm hmm because i can't get my head or heart around the excitement and kind of the i can't get my head around the group of evangelicals now if you if you're at a place where you're just like i could not vote for hillary clinton okay i get that if you're just like i just couldn't i just couldn't i just couldn't yeah, I'm like I yeah. get that. So yeah. I I get, I went into the voting booth
1: mm-hmm.
0: last November. Struggling, just like oh I don't <laughs> want to be here,
2: but <laughs> it, too yeah. many people
0: that look like me died, for this right. Right, right. So I can't right. pass it up. Right, I can't right. not. I didn't go vote to like 7:20 and it was closing <laughs> at 7:30. <730. laughs> right, yeah. I went at
3: like 7:20. I was first one. I just wanted to get it over with. Yeah, I just dragged myself <laughs> in there. and said I got to
0: do it. Too many people died. Yeah for me to exercise this right. Absolutely. Um, but what I don't get is just like the excitement. Like if people say I went in the voting booth and I held my nose, I go, that makes sense to me. But but yeah, the the prophecies about, you know, he'll go into the White House as Trump and leave as a trumpet. Um, you know, the the... the this feeling that God's hand is back on America again.
1: Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Um, and when we talk about, you know, we're going to we're going we're gonna to do this again or we're going to go back. I'm always thinking how far back you talking. Like if you're right. talking about we going back to 1987, you know, I might do that. <laughs> I might put on some parachute pants. <laughs> there and there some you penny go. Loafers.
3: That's right. Prince I mean, was still alive. Yeah. You know, but <laughs> if we,
0: But I can't go back to 1947 right 1957 right no what do we mean go back right Right. like this kind of nostalgia about you know I just so that that's where I where I start is there has to be conversations because there are there there are many people that feel like because it was such a high number that voted Mm
1: -hmm.
0: there there are people that feel like you know Evangelicalism sells its soul for the the porridge of political power and influence and being a being a Washington D.C. insider, <laughs> right? And, um, and so, you know, as Lucy said years ago on, on "I Love Lucy," they, <laughs> evangelicalism got some explaining to do, so that people <laughs> yeah. can understand. And I understand you can't put all evangelicals in a box. So sure. So people voted for different reasons. But I, I just get discouraged when I'm in that segment of evangelicalism that's throwing a party now. That's exciting. Right. That's relaxed now. Like, oh, we survived those horrific, terrible, pagan, secular, leftist, dangerous, eight years of that Obama.
1: Right. And right. now. Right.
0: We're back in these glorious, godly, right. thank you, God, for not judging us and destroying the whole nation during <laughs> yeah. those eight years. You were so That's merciful right. and compassionate that you just didn't wipe the whole nation <laughs> off the planet. And now, God, we can honor right. you again. Yeah. And there's a, now, there's some evangelicals, praise God, that when they hear that segment of evangelicalism, mm-hmm. they get sick in their stomach and they're disturbed. And, you, you know, but... But that segment of evangelicalism, it, you know, it—that's what puts a weird feeling in my gut. Mm-hmm. And I would say the same thing on the other side to the black church. To be honest, I get concerned, and I think that's why a lot of millennials stayed home. The way in which some black churches just were all in Hillary Clinton without mm-hmm. critiquing, yeah, without saying no. Really, explain when. When, when when Bill Clinton was president and the Clintons participated in the super predator narrative right. of what was going on in the right. cities, that was detrimental to the black community. I mean, a lot of prison, a lot of uh, what would become for profit prisons got built during that time. Right. Uh, and so, <laughs> you know, I just I get concerned when a segment of the Christian church goes hyper all in left mm-hmm. or when it goes hyper all in right because then we lose sense of what it means to be radical for God's kingdom hmm. and we lose sense to me of um, the call and the mandate to make disciples to advance the kingdom of God and to do justice and love mercy
3: because
0: mm-hmm. Ideology trumps deeply rooted biblical theology. And I think what evangelicalism has to do now is prove that deep, biblically rooted theology, Mm -hmm. citizenship in the kingdom of God, and the mandate to love mercy and do justice supersedes hyper-nationalism.
3: So there's a lot to I didn't think thing to process on there. I wanted to. I know you said there was a quote that that they left out on some interview you were doing. I want I want I wanted to bring back that quote that you said that they left out in in an in interview you did. I forget which with Christian magazine.
0: Oh yeah, I I did it. I did an interview for Outreach Magazine, and you know I'm um evangelicalism. There's a great opportunity for evangelicalism to embrace the gift of the historical tradition and theology of the black church. Hmm. Because when theology in America is being shaped primarily or exclusively
1: mm-hmm.
0: by the privileged within the dominant culture, it is very limited in its ability to present the full gospel.
3: Wow. Because
0: yeah. the yeah. son of God didn't come as a privileged wealthy Roman.
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: I mean he could've. Yeah. Why didn't why didn't you or at best, why didn't he just come as a Jewish Pharisee and just change things from the inside of the elite structure of what it meant to be a religious gatekeeper. Right. Like why why didn't Jesus come like that? <laughs> well, Jesus comes born in in the stench of barn feces. Poor poor, then because they're murdering all the babies that look like him he ends right. up being a refugee in North Africa. Yeah um, I mean, you think of all that I mean that that's and that ties in when I said, well I love that the name of this is profane faith because <laughs> Jesus touched, was touched by mm-hmm. gave f- full dignity and, and humanness. To the profane when he walked the earth. Absolutely. And so should not the redeemed from amongst the profane have just as much right to speak into theological frameworks. Yeah. To speak into ecclesiology and Christology. hmm Eschatology. Mm-hmm. And so the problem is in evangelicalism is too many times the folks that have the journey that you and I have Mm -hmm. that come out of the experiences that we have, um, we still get relegated to kind of a second tier influence. Now I'm fortunate, you know what I mean? Like I'm fortunate that I, I get a lot of opportunities to preach in large evangelical churches. I've been fortunate and privileged to lead an evangelical organization and so forth. But there are still times, mm-hmm. because evangelicalism is predominantly white, that that the system and structure and hierarchy puts me back in my place and reminds me who I am.
3: Hmm. In what way? Talk. You shared a little bit about that.
0: Um. You know, I remember uh, when I was president of World Impact. Um, I wrote a blog post about um, it. Was called Evangelicalism and Black Lives Matter.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I, and what I was trying to do was help evangelicals get a broader understanding of the Black Lives Matter movement, mm. see it as a mission field, and make the case of why the evangelical church can't just demonize and make the black lives matter movement the enemy but actually has to understand kind of the missional context the theological context that mm. gives rise to a black lives matter movement whether you fully agree with their ideology or not okay. because i'm thinking didn't jesus didn't jesus lovingly mm-hmm. engage cultures and lifestyles and cultural contexts in which he would not have... I mean, I'm not, I don't want to make a... Don't make a direct comparison here. But Jesus did not condone adultery. But the way in which he stepped into the life of an adulterous woman exposed the hypocrisy in the system uh, and uh, and also kept the woman from being murdered, from receiving right. capital punishment. is right. phenomenal. Yeah, so you know, for me, I even think about um my transition mm-hmm. out of world impact in in this context. I mean, I like I said earlier, I I was honored, I enjoyed being president of World Impact. I mean I was the first African American to, to serve as president there. I followed the founder who was there for 42 years. Hmm. But I also realized that within evangelicalism, as we've kind of talked about this in different ways during right. this time together, yeah. that there is a huge chasm. What, what I realized after the presidential election was that there was a huge chasm between the churches and the indigenous urban ministry leaders that we served Mm -hmm. and the people that for the most part were funding world impact. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's just, it's the reality. So, I mean, I don't think I'm saying something that people don't realize, but what I realized was after the presidential election, there were people that um, were funders of world impact that supported world impact. They were like, Whew. man, mm-hmm. you know, we can, we can take a deep breath and go, okay,
2: <laughs> right. She didn't win. Right.
0: You know what I mean? Uh, but there were um, people that we served and walked alongside that were like grieving, like, Oh my gosh, he won. And so, but I couldn't always get some of those support. Now there were some supporters that I could there, there, there were, you know, I, I was very, the bored. Of World Impact was very gracious, very good, and and I was able to get traction there and find support. But, you know, I wish that I could have facilitated some of our major donors Mm -hmm. getting in the room with people that we served. And they would just, without judging, without feeling defensive or responding, just would hear the laments of those urban indigenous pastors and ministry leaders that we served. And so, um, and, and so what, what I found was, yeah, there, there was, I was, I was kind of caught in that chasm of the people that represented the mission Mm -hmm. and the, 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 the global ends of world impact and, you know, the the people that were the funders and supporters of the ministry. And that, that continues to be a challenge within evangelical ministry is just, um, the, the world views the theology, the political ideology, yeah. the people that fund ministry yeah. is so different. It, it it tends to go right, right, and then yep. um, that's not the case with where we were serving, right. where we were trying to gain. I mean, it took me, when I first came to World Impact in 2013, it took me a good two years or so to get credible. We had great credibility with funders, mm-hmm. but we didn't have good credibility with with the urban church. Yeah. Many African-American yeah. churches were like, you know what? I see world impact. They've been here for years, but I've never felt like they honored or cared about what we were doing. Right. And, and there were staff that knew that. And there were was, was staff that joined me and going around. And, you know, I spent time apologizing, repenting, asking for forgiveness and yeah. working to have strong, credible, and I, I believe Alvin Sanders, who's the interim president, who's yeah. there now, is continuing that work and doing a great job in it, because at the end of the day, the real fruit of yeah. world impact is not the missionary. It's the indigenous urban leaders there you that go. will be empowered because of those missionaries.
3: Man, well, at- that's deep, brother. I mean, I, I mean, I appreciate you sharing. I mean, I know you know, I was. I wasn't surprised, and at the same time, I was just like, "All right, this is these shifts." I mean, I know for me, when forty-five was elected, I was like, "Man, um, that was for me. That was my." As Brandy Miller said, I, I, "I served evangelicalism. It's divorce papers. Like we were, we were separated, but like that was, that was that." And I'm not saying that's what you did, but
0: <laughs> he was like in Harlem Nights when he got put right. your mama on the phone. Right,
3: exactly. <laughs> come <coming> home. exactly. <laughs> So, you know, and I don't necessarily, I haven't necessarily landed on like, oh, you know, what did you define yourself at? I am mean, like, you know, it's like, I mean, I'm definitely still Christian, but I, it's, it's. I heard
0: de- you pray. I know you love Jesus. Right. <laughs> right. I you, I, I, I've been hearing you pray all week. I've been That's in right. Chicago. So That's right. I just, for the people that don't think yeah. so, just, just know, I, uh, I can vouch for <laughs> Dan Hodge has not become a humanist. He has not left <laughs> the church. Uh, oh, but, man. Uh, put it this way you're not the segment of Christianity right now that needs to uh, <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> regain its credibility.
3: <laughs> right. Mm. Well, no, and, and no, and absolutely, man. And I think, I know for me, I've made some, some, some changes as well, just to kind of readjust and, and, you know, to think through those things, but, you know, thanks for sharing, man. I appreciate it,
0: man. I, I'm excited and honored that you'd have me on and I'd love to be back again,
3: man. I appreciate it, man. And where can people find you, man? Where are you at? What are you doing?
0: Sure. Yeah. So, um, I am at Bayside Church Midtown. Okay. And so you can go to BaysideOnline.com. Okay. And then when it says select a campus, select Midtown, you can listen to sermons. So yeah, for for those that that haven't heard or don't know, I'm now serving as co-lead pastor of uh, Bayside Midtown Church in sacramento california co-pastoring with bob ballion we're a multi-ethnic multi-racial uh urban church of about 2600 wow uh and um you know just trying to advance god's kingdom uh in in the city of sacramento and beyond and also you know be watching for ephraim smith empowerment strategies all right all right coming soon that that that's That's basically the new banner under which I'm speaking, writing. So, um, and, uh, you know, you can shoot me an email at RevEphraim at gmail.com. There we go. Or look me up on Twitter and Facebook.
3: That's cool. Yes, that's great. And I'll put all of these in the show notes. And for those of you listening, chime in. Let us know what you guys think in terms of faith and evangelicalism and race and ministry and all that good stuff. Ephraim, thanks, brother. Appreciate it, man.
0: Thanks, man. Appreciate you. All right. You know... It has been proclaimed recently in this nation that black lives matter. And the response has been, well, all lives matter. But do we really matter when we are imprisoned in a socialized, man-made matrix that is already predetermined who is who, who is better, who is lesser than? I agree, all lives matter to God. That's not the problem. The problem is we are in a broken, upside-down world. We are in a sinful, sinister, divided, dysfunctional world where all lives don't value the same.
3: Well, what did I tell you? Yeah. Ephraim, Ephraim's uh, an interesting brother, ain't he? He's in in a good way. I know he's probably listening. He's like, interesting. What does that mean? (laughs) Um, Not at all. Not in a negative way at all. He's a really good, solid brother. I think he's trying to work some good things out. Um, And I do think that the the profane that he's trying to work through um, is very welcome, especially on a podcast like this. Right. It's very welcome. And I think. I think we all have to wrestle with some things as, as if you know me, you know, that I always say there is great theology. There is great faith within the tension that happens in our faith journey. Um, I think when we give up that tension and seek safety and seek comfort, that's when it goes to hell. That's when it gets just back crap crazy, right? That's when things just start to fall apart and it just doesn't make sense. So, uh, and you know, here's the thing. I, I, I don't, I don't think it, it doesn't. That's, that's the wrong wording. It doesn't make sense. I think it. It. It shouldn't make sense. I think if it makes too much sense, you're doing something wrong. <laughs> I think if it makes you have too many answers, it there is something intricately wrong with your faith. I think faith produces a certain amount of questions and doubt, um, and that's a good, healthy place to be. And I appreciate Brother Ephraim in his journey. Uh, on that. Uh, As I've mentioned before, he and I get a chance to co-teach and lead uh, a doctoral program at Fuller Theological Seminary, Um, and we really do balance each other out. I'm more of the theory research guy. He's got the hands-on, practical, pastoral approach, and I've really appreciated that about him. So once again, uh, thank you guys for listening. We really appreciate it. Um, Again, check us out at WhiteHodgePodcast.com. Um, If you like us, that would be great. If you comment and subscribe, that'd be even better. And if you tell some friends to listen, that would be awesome. Until the next time, thanks for listening. I'm Daniel Whiteheart.